Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Energy powers our world. From the electricity in our homes to the fuel in our cars, to the factories that make all the things we use. But we know there's a problem about how we produce it. The terrifying scale of Australia's bushfire disaster is beginning... Buller to... District has been forced to extend its state of emergency as it's struggling to... Recover. Cities hotter and less livable, the stark warning out of the latest global climate report, it paints a grim picture... Ongoing and widespread flooding in eastern Australia human-caused climate change is increasing the risk of this kind of event. How do we solve our energy problem? Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Every year, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment releases a report on energy used in New Zealand. The 2021 report is real interesting because COVID-19 restrictions have really messed with graphs. Energy consumption was at its lowest level in seven years. But normally, it grows year on year. Not just in New Zealand, but globally too. We all know this is something we need to address. Now. And when it boils down to it, there are two ways. Reduce the energy demand and switch to other sources that don't release greenhouse gases. Ideally, we would do both. We don't have all the answers. But today, two stories from researchers at Tehera Nawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, who are working on the energy problem. Later, we'll hear from a scientist who's trying to reduce the energy that's needed to produce ammonia, used in making fertilizer. But first... Alison Balance meets some engineers coming up with smart ways to keep the lights on by maximising locally produced renewable electricity. A reliable electricity supply underpins much of modern life. In just a few minutes at home, I might turn on a light, use my computer, cook something in the microwave, start the dishwasher, set a load of laundry in motion, plug in the electric car for a charge and decide not to do the vacuuming after all. All of that takes power. And most of us get that power from the national electricity grid, oblivious to the work that the power companies and Transpower do to balance the competing requirements of supply and demand, when power is produced versus when we actually want to use it. But there's a growing interest in a growing suite of renewable energy systems, and coming up with the best ways of using these is what interests Alan Brent. Alan heads Victoria University of Wellington's Sustainable Energy Centre, and along with postdoc researcher Sohail Mosseini, Alan spends a lot of time thinking about the way electricity generation might look and work in the future. I visited the pair in their lab on a wet, windy Wellington day, 
and wondered what Alan thought of the day in terms of energy production. Actually, today is wonderful. So we have a lot of wind. So we have great potential for, for expanding our, our wind sector and uh, exploiting that resource. It's raining. That's good for our hydropower schemes. So on a day when it's not raining, then we're going to have sunshine, right? So it's how we combine or integrate or hybridize, as we call it, uh, the different uh, energy technologies and, and resources that's, that's available to us. So we've touched on solar, wind, hydro. What else might there be in this mix of things? All right, so geothermal is uh, an obvious one for, for Aotearoa New Zealand. Uh, biomass uh, is, is the other option. On, on the solar side, there are a range of differences. It's not only solar photovoltaic that we're all used to seeing on a roof where we're just generating electricity. We have solar thermal uh, options where we're gen- generating heat. You're interested in this from a nationwide point of view, a regional point of view. Where, where does your interest lie? On different levels, right? So we, we do need to think about the transitioning of our energy system as a whole. And we all know this year with the Climate Change Commission's uh, advice uh, that we're going to need more electrification, etc., and a lot of degeneration. But another key focus area for our group is to look at the resilience of communities. And so a lot of our work at Sahel's work is, is looking at microgrids. And again, we can go into a community, we can look at solar generation, wind, we can look at uh, microhydro, if there's a river that runs through it, we can look at biomass because from an agricultural perspective, we can utilize some of that. And we're integrating all of those with different energy vectors. So are we using batteries and supercapacitors? Are we using hydrogen possibly? Uh, because we need to think about all the energy services that are required in a, in a community. And so so Hal's work is around yeah, using some nifty AI techniques, artificial intelligence techniques, to to optimise these systems for specific context. So we're not just talking about one item of interest, you know, not just a set of solar panels. This is a collection of things. Yes, exactly. It's a collection of uh, different technologies, both generation and storage technologies, and uh, it encompasses solar PV and uh, wind turbines and other non-dispatchable or non-controllable generation technologies that need storage. So we need to find the optimal mix or combination of uh, generation and storage technologies uh, from cost perspective. So the AI-based optimization method is able to determine the cost optimal mix of those generation and storage technologies that can meet demand whilst ensuring the resilience and reliability needs of the communities. And we also can uh, accommodate dispatchable renewables like biomass. And all of these things can work together to meet the uh, needs of local communities. Sohail's artificial intelligence system uses optimization algorithms. The computer program repeatedly analyzes different scenarios until it identifies the best solution. Each small rural community, for example, running its own micropower grid, independent of the main grid that most of us rely on, is unique. So there is no one-size-fits-all solution. We have a predefined uh, configuration of uh, renewable energy system or uh, microgrids for the communities based on the potentials of the site. And we apply the AI-based method to optimize the uh, size of each component 
that needs to be installed for the community to meet their demands, residential loads or uh, EV loads, electric vehicle loads. And it also has some constraints to address outage, grid outage, and so that they, from a resilience perspective, they, they become self-sufficient at times of outage. So community A, the optimization might be, you're really good for solar, you've got some backup with this micro-hydro, um, if you added in a wind turbine, you would have the perfect mix. It might be a different mix of things for community B around the corner. Yes, it, it all depends on the renewable energy potentials of the site, of the site of interest, and also the behaviour and load patterns of the community that makes difference. And we have solar PV and also um, uh, microhydro and uh, wind turbine, all of which are weather dependent, and we should have some storage of, as backup for them. It can be uh, hydrogen batteries, supercapacitors, flywheels, or other storage technologies that need to uh, be installed along with those uh, non-dispatchable or non-controllable renewables so that we can satisfy the load all the time. Like, for example, when uh, at night, if uh, when, when solar is not generating, we should have some batteries to back the system up. So you actually need to know quite a lot about how individual households use their electricity. So, you know, this household's home during the day, they use lots in the middle of the day. These people are out during the day, but they come home at evening and that's when their energy load is. And so you've got to sort of build that out so that you understand from the whole community when they use their power. Yes, and we should gain those information from a specific questionnaire that we give to the communities and they fill, fill it out when we understand at what times they use their specific appliances and how we can use those information to drive the overall load profile of the uh, household and in turn the community. Why do we need these sophisticated algorithms and so on? Is we have all these uncertainties, right? So we have uncertainties around climate change, so how those resources are going to change over time as we're going forward. We have uncertainties on the behaviours of people. Uh, they might tell us uh, how they'll be using energy. Maybe in a year or two's time, everybody buys an EV, or yeah, just their demand profiles start changing. So we need to take all of that into consideration. And as uh, Sohel said, we, from a, from a resiliency and reliability of, 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 the, of the microgrid, we need to project going forward how the system might need to be adapted as we go forward. Uh, how do we implement systems that manage the demand profile more effectively? Just, just to use a very simple ex example, not all of us will think about, okay, now I need to switch on the washing machine and switch off that appliance and so on. But now we have technology that will just manage that for us. So your fridge doesn't need to be on all the time. It just needs to be on for certain parts of the day. So, yeah, so we can design and, and implement these systems that, that does the management for us. We've always had simple systems like that, like ripple control for hot water cylinders, yeah. so they can turn off the hot water cylinders at peak demand. It's expanding that idea, but what we have is more smart technologies, so there's more communication between your different loads or appliances, as, as, as you will, to, to a centralised computer that sort of manages, all, manages it all. So uh, I can see that household uh, is now generating solar PV, but nobody's in the household. There's a demand in this next house, so we can actually supply electricity from that house to that house. And we can even set up 
uh, what we've seen around the world now, uh, like a mini market. Uh, so the listeners will know that we have a wholesale market for the national energy system, and that's all controlled by Transpower and other entities. That's fine. We can do exactly the same thing in the microgrid within communities, and people can we can have spot prices, really, uh, as we're going through the day, and so households can trade energy with one another. And so we're moving away from being consumers to be uh, prosumers. So we produce and consume uh, energy. Sahail has tested out his optimization AI using data from several real-life communities. The ski town of Ohekuni in the central North Island, for example, has its own rather unique pattern of power use, especially in winter, when influxes of skiers head up Mount Ruapehu each day and then descend on the town when the slopes close. I have hypothetically optimised some systems, for uh, one for the town of Hakuni, which has a really interesting load profile. It, it has a really uh, seasonal uh, pattern and it's difficult to find a, a cost-optimal system for it uh, because of the large um, storage that needs to be installed. But I used uh, the, the mini market that, like, uh, that, that Alan just mentioned to, to, to use the flexibility from customers so that they can curtail uh, and, and reduce their loads during high-priced hours of the day. And therefore, we can reduce the size of the uh, storage that needs to be installed. And that really helped with, the, with, with coming up with a cost-effective solution for a renewables-based uh, microgrid for the town of Hakuni. The Rakiora Stewart Island community faces a very different kind of challenge. The 400 or so residents and the mostly summer visitors currently rely on electricity produced by diesel generators. The remote island is reached using plane or ferry, both of which also rely on fossil fuels. So what does Sahail's desktop optimization suggest might be a good future energy option for Rakayura? What we've proposed is to install a renewable energy system that uses wind turbines, which can address all the, nearly all the, all the energy needs of the community. We also looked at the ferry from the bluff and converting that to hydrogen, as an example. Stewart Island is, is a great example of, yeah, the solar might not be that great down there. The wind is excellent, and there are other, other options on, on, on the island. So entirely feasible to make the community 100% renewable and self-sustainable. Thanks, Alison. That was Alison Balance, speaking with Professor Alan Brent and Dr Sohail Maseni, both from the School of Engineering and Computer Science at Victoria University of Wellington. Electricity in our homes is something we probably consider often in terms of energy needs, as well as transport, putting fuel in our cars. But something we may not think about is the energy that industry and large-scale manufacturing requires. And there are many ways to divide up greenhouse gas emissions by different sectors, but no matter how you slice it, manufacturing always comes out near the top. The way that we make things can be incredibly carbon intensive. This is one of the five grand challenges, as they call them, that the Breakthrough Energy Programme wants to tackle. Established in 2015 by Bill Gates and a coalition of private investors, Breakthrough Energy's stated aims are to support innovations that will lead the world to net zero emissions. With climate, we have a deadline. We know we need a lot of innovation to get from 51 billion tonnes of emissions 
all the way to zero by 2050 to avoid a climate disaster. Amongst other things, they're looking at how to decarbonize the hard industries, large-scale manufacturing of things like steel, cement and fertilizer. Investors have been reluctant to back these new climate technologies because clean cement is the same as regular cement. You're just changing the manufacturing process. And one of the teams they are backing is led by Associate Professor Frank Natali in the physics department at Tehere Nawaka. So most of the uh, greenhouse emissions are coming from these hard industries, but you know, that's something we have to tackle. And that's not something easy to tackle in terms of new um, technologies that are already existing, or even in terms of time frame. Uh, it will take quite a long time to decarbonize these industries, and that's what we, we aim at Breakthrough Energy Programme. What Frank and his colleagues are focused on is reducing the energy needed to produce ammonia. So ammonia is a gas. It is an essential gas in the production of fertilizers. And um, the production of ammonia is in fact extremely um, um, black, dark, not green. You know, this number that is quite shocking and insane is the fact when you produce one tonne of ammonia, you're producing three tonnes of CO2. Ammonia has the chemical formula NH3, so one nitrogen molecule plus three hydrogen molecules that are bonded together. Now, nitrogen makes up 78% of the Earth's atmosphere, so there's plenty of it about. But it's capturing it and bonding it to hydrogen that requires a lot of energy. So nitrogen is sourced from air, but hydrogen is sourced mostly from fossil fuels, so coal or natural gases. And as you can imagine, it's highly uh, carbon intensive. Uh, you have, you know, uh, and that's what is um, happening currently, thinking about green ammonia plant where the hydrogen is sourced from water. And in this case, you know, it will help to decarbonize ammonia production. However, you know, the, the cost of green ammonia plant using green hydrogen is much, much more expensive than, unfortunately, the use of uh, hydrogen from fossil fuels. This is the first reason of the huge carbon footprint. The second reason of the huge carbon footprint comes from the condition of the chemical reaction to produce ammonia. So what happens is you're putting the hydrogen and the nitrogen uh, gases um, in a reactor. It's going through a, a material which is called the catalyst. And the gases and the catalyst react in a way that um, the gases are converted in ammonia. It looks very simple like this and, you know, in, in, in principle, it should be uh, very simple, but to make this reaction efficient, so to produce ammonia in large quantities, you need to make this reaction at very high pressures and very high temperatures. So mm-hmm. this requires a lot of um, energy. So that's, ammonia production is very energy intensive and carbon intensive uh, process. So we need, we need to move away from this. Time for some chemistry. In the air, nitrogen is tightly bound to another nitrogen molecule and is essentially unusable. Nitrogen fixation is what chemists call the process by which this N2 gas is converted into nitrogen compounds that can be used, such as ammonia. For a very long time, the only things that could capture and fix nitrogen from the air were microbes in the soil. But they did this slowly slower than the speed at which agriculture was depleting nitrogen from the soil. We needed a way to fix nitrogen efficiently out of the air on a large scale in order to continue to replenish the soil and feed a growing global population. 
This is what the Haber-Bosch process solved when it was invented in the early 1900s. This is the process that Franck is talking about, which requires high temperatures and pressure. As a side note, Haber-Bosch is named after the two people who invented it. And if you want to go down a rabbit hole of physical chemistry, twisted morals, and science being used to terrible ends, then Google Fritz Haber. But back to Franck, because he and his team are working to make this process better. So we're focusing on a material of the catalyst. And so we have developed over the last couple of years, you know, a new family of materials, also called the catalyst, that allows the reaction of the hydrogen and nitrogen to happen at much lower pressures and lower temperature. So in, in this sense, we, we can imagine lowering the carbon-intensive and energy-intensive ammonia production process. So yes, our innovation is really in the material science. Um, and these materials you know, are so reactive with nitrogen and hydrogen that it opens the way of, uh, of you know, supporting the green ammonia production and, and potentially you know, even have a carbon-free ammonia production. Globally, an estimated 144 million tonnes of ammonia is produced each year. The majority of this goes towards making fertiliser. But, says Frank, there may be a demand for ammonia in another area in the future. It has other applications in terms of refrigeration and some other manufacturing processes. But what is, I think, even more important to have in mind is what's going to happen in the future with ammonia. Obviously, we still continue to use ammonia for fertilizer production, but there is a need of finding um, alternative uh, fuels, not only for cars, you know, like we are seeing currently, but also for the shipping industry or aviation. And ammonia is seen as the next carbon-free fuel for the shipping industry. Of course, there are more chemistry problems to solve for using ammonia as a fuel. A question we have often is, in order to use ammonia as a fuel, you will need to uh, burn it, uh, and it will react with oxygen. Uh, and you may have, you know, some uh, chemicals uh, created during the reaction, and we will have to deal with them to obviously avoid them to um, be considered as greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so there is a lot of engineering in particular to reduce what we call the NOx gases, that are also greenhouse um, gases. And, and the progress has been incredible in the engineering sector, so people are able to deal with ammonia combustion and avoid the emission of greenhouse emissions from this combustion. The NOx gases that Frank mentions here is a collective NOx term for nitrogen and oxygen compounds that are the most relevant for air pollution. For example, nitrous oxide. And I'll just note here that these can also be produced and released when excess fertiliser is spread on the soil. Ammonium and nitrate not used by plants can be converted into nitrous oxide by microbes and when it escapes into the air, it is a potent greenhouse gas. Also, excess nitrogen on fields, whether from synthetic fertiliser, manure or urine, can lead to nitrate runoff into streams and rivers, which causes problems for water quality. But there's no denying that as the world stands, we need synthetic fertiliser to feed everyone. And so we need its production to be carbon zero as fast as possible. Ammonia plants are only economically viable at large scale. And so they require an extremely large um, energy amount to produce ammonia. With our process of being able to reduce the pressure and the temperature conditions of the reaction, 
we now um, able to think about smaller uh, ammonia plants requiring obviously less electricity and we can imagine using you know renewable energies to um, run the plant so why we we see um, the advantages of our approach is the fact now we can think about using less electricity to produce ammonia so it opens the way of using renewable electricity to run the plant and at the same time you know we are obviously working in parallel and talking in parallel with people producing a green hydrogen uh, and this you know if you combine our you know material chemical process with what is happening in the hydrogen you know industry and making it green you can think about a process where all the raw materials and all the energy that you provide within the ammonia plant will become from carbon-free um, sources. So in principle, you could think about a totally green ammonia plant where zero CO2 emissions are, are produced. But there is still a large hurdle to clear. Upscaling what the team are able to do now in the lab to ensure it is economically viable. Because what I learned from chatting with Frank about this is you do have to think of the economics. It has to be worth it for companies to even consider switching. So we are mostly, you know, um, scientists doing uh, R&D. So we have, um, you know, demonstrated the, the, the or proof of concept of producing ammonia under very mild conditions of pressures and temperature. Uh, so we can, we can produce basically ammonia at 100 degrees Celsius instead of 500 degrees Celsius in current ammonia uh, production plants. So what we are doing, we are trying to upscaling our catalyst. So we are typically working with a small quantity of materials, probably in the gram scale. And we are trying to assess uh, performances of this catalyst uh, within the context of ammonia production. And we are kind of upscaling the size of our catalyst to try to produce more and more ammonia. Uh, you have to know that we, even if we're extremely successful from a scientific point of view uh, in the gram scale, the current ammonia plants are producing uh, about 1,000 or even more tons of ammonia per day. We are in the scale of probably gram or several grams of ammonia per day. So you have a huge gap, you know, in terms of upscaling, and that's why we are trying to um, uh, to fill this gap with the breakthrough energy uh, program. Um, and so that's yes, a lot of R&D work, in fact. And essentially, that's what the breakthrough energy program is there to support. Yes, yeah, so this gap between yes. the basic R&D and the application. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's uh, it has been you know proven that. Uh, for this art industry, what is really difficult is to move from the lab scale to something that makes that is meaningful for these industries, because they are basically dealing with tons of materials, ammonia, cement uh, per day. While we are dealing with you know something which is maybe one million times smaller in terms of scale per day. So uh, the breakthrough energy program is fantastic because it allows us to investigate and offer a pathway to move or to test what we are doing in the lab to a scale that is potentially interesting for, um, uh, for these industries to, and help them to decarbonize. Frank tells me they've been producing ammonia continuously for the last few days using their catalyst under mild conditions. We pop into the lab so I can have a look. There's a large clear cabinet with what looks like full-length large black rubber gloves and someone is working away in a lab coat with their hands in the gloves, manipulating what's inside. You have two important pieces of equipment in this room. You have one glove box in which our um, scientist, Dr. Jechan, is fabricating and producing the catalyst. 
and they are produced. He basically transfers them to the ammonia reactor. Along the wall are a chained row of large gas tanks with regulators and pipes attached to them. On the bench top sits a computer followed by a series of stainless steel cabinets. The largest in the middle, about the size of a small fridge, is the reactor where the ammonia is made. So you're in front of the uh, ammonia reactor. You can see it's not necessarily a large piece of equipment. It's sitting on a, on a bench top, as you can see. And so, you know, on one side of the lab, we have uh, bottles of gas, I'm sorry, with hydrogen, nitrogen. They go through the reactor. Inside the reactor, you have a tube, uh, you know, a metallic tube. Uh, inside, we, we are putting the catalyst material and the gas goes through and passes through these catalyst, uh, catalytic materials. It reacts and on the other side or end of the tube we are collecting the ammonia and we are analyzing you know, the quantity of ammonia we are producing, the yield of the reaction, and then we try obviously to make it with um, the lowest and um, temperature and pressures. The funding is for two years and Frank's team is four full-time researchers. It's not a guarantee, he says, but he's hoping they can help in some way. With these hard industries, the key point is you need to focus on the science. It has to be science-driven. It will take a long time, so you have to accept this. Everybody has to accept this, the researchers, you know, but also the funding agencies, the government, the industries, the investors. And it will be extremely risky. So we expect, you know, unfortunately, a very high unsuccessful rate of these um, innovations. Um, but that's, you know, we have to... All to work to together, yes. Mm. Uh, and something that is lovely with Breakthrough Energy Program, you know, we, we are working, you know, towards the same goal. This is not a competition between, you know, um, projects or startups. The goal is to really reduce CO2, significantly CO2 emissions. Thanks to Associate Professor Frank Natali in the School of Chemical and Physical Sciences in Victoria University of Wellington. This episode was produced by Alison Valance and me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Walken is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for photos and links, access to our back catalogue and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are lots of other great RNZ podcasts on a whole range of topics for you to explore and enjoy. Have a listen to Voices, a podcast on people from all over the world that call Aotearoa New Zealand home. There are a range of stories spanning politics, society, identity, art and culture. Find it by searching for RNZ Voices on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.